0: Bane free radio
1: hour
2: on the podcast the keystone to the Arch of Time found in Fort Smith Arkansas now will somebody put it back in the day before yesterday Giants, Cadets, and Dungeon Masters. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour Podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of a two-part roundtable discussion featuring the authors of a Ring of Fire short story collection, Ring of Fire 4. Our participants all wrote stories for the book, and they include Eric Flint, David Bren, Charles E. Gannon, David Carrico, Walter H. Hunt, Robert Waters, Walt Boyes, Joy Ward, Virginia DeMars, and Bjorn Hassler. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. We are closing in on the finale soon. Now, here's the news. There's new free fiction and nonfiction at the Bain.com website, or will be in a day or two from now, which is probably yesterday to you or the day before last year, or something like that. And for that ailment, we have an alternate history tale from David Brenn. It's at the Bain.com main page, or will have been, or will be, or was. You get the picture. This is 71. The 71 refers to a year like 1632 does in Eric Flint's Ring of Fire universe. In fact, this is set in Eric Flint's alternate history. It appears here in serialized form and is also part of the new Ring of Fire 4 anthology. We are about to hear more from David Bren and the other authors in our interview, but if you want a nice introduction to the anthology, or you want to read a story by the legendary David Bren, or you will basically read the ingredients on a cereal box if someone points to them and says, hey, words, then check out 71, and let that lead you into the other great stories in the Ring of Fire 4 anthology. Also at Bain.com is a great story by another legend, David Drake. This is Cadet Cruise, and it is a story set in Dave's RCN Leary and Mundi military science fiction series. This is a really cool story because it's about our redoubtable and adventurous Captain Daniel Leary, hero of the series, um, along with Adele Mundi, back when he was in the Naval Academy. It turns out he was just as much of a roguish hero back then as he is in Dave's new entry in the series which is out in June or was or will be that book is called Death Sprite Day so if you want to have an adventure with a young Daniel Leary in preparation for a Death Sprite Day check out Cadet Cruise also on the bane website is a really cool article by Bob Krueger this one is called Do Dungeon Masters Roll Magic Dice in this piece, Bob makes the argument that the best dungeon masters and such in role playing games have the ability to deceive themselves in a creative way, as well as to deceive the players. Bob Kruger runs the publishing company Electric Story, where you can find my short story collection, The Robot's Twilight Companion, as well as stories by lots of great writers like Michael Bishop, Susie McKee Charnis, and that G Railroad Martin guy. But for years, Bob was a writer for Microsoft Online Games and for Wizards of the Coast. He interviewed several writers and game designers for their take on the self-deception issue and Bob's argument that dungeon masters use it on themselves. From Bane author Reiki Spore to D&D 3 designer and writer Jonathan Tweet to the Wizards of the Coast founder and more. It's a fun piece, and Bob makes a pretty compelling case that the dice in D&D are stage trappings for storytelling, even if the DM believes that somehow he is obeying the dice rather than them obeying him. Cadet Cruise by David Drake, 71 by David Bren, and Do Dungeon Masters Roll Magic Dice by Bob Kruger are all available at Bane.com now. And after that, they will be anthologized in the e-book collections Free Short Stories 2016 and Free Nonfiction 2016, both available at Bain eBooks for as long as the arch of time holds eternity from crashing down on top of us and drowning us in the river of never and forever, or something like that. Check them out. This is part two of a two-part roundtable discussion by the writers collected and short story anthology Ring of Fire 4. You can hear part one of the roundtable on the previous Banefree Radio Hour podcast. I want to welcome a host of writers to the podcast. These are the many contributors to the latest story collection set in Eric Flint's Ring of Fire series universe. That book is Ring of Fire 4. Hello, everyone. Hey.
0: Hello. Hi. How are you doing? Hello, hello.
2: There's a bunch. Eric Flint is the creator of the Alternate History Ring of Fire series, beginning with his groundbreaking first book in the series, 1632, published in 2000, and continuing through many best-selling books, stories, and collaborations. Eric's writing career began with science fiction first contact novel Mother of Demons. With David Drake, he collaborated on the six-volume Belisarius series, and with a great many other writers, including David Weber, Mercedes Lackey, Katie Wentworth, Dave Freer and Reiki Spore. As he states in the introduction to Ring of Fire 4, the Ring of Fire series has about 2,900,000 words in novel form, about 2,200,000 words in anthology form, and in ebooks and in anthology uh, books that are ebooks, uh, about 5,673,000 words, which is 21 times longer than The Lord of the Rings and 16 times longer than War and Peace. Also with us is David Brann. In addition to being a friend of Eric's, David Brann is a scientist, speaker, technical consultant, and world-renowned author. His novels have been New York Times bestsellers, winning multiple Hugo Nebula and other awards. At least a dozen have been translated into more than 20 languages. Others of the 1632 Glitterati with us now are Charles E. Gannon, three-times Nebula nominee for his Kane Riordan science fiction series. And within the 1632 sphere, he is the co-author with Eric Flint of 1635, The Papal Stakes, and 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. Also with us is Walter H. Hunt, who is the author of the Dark Wings space adventure series. He is the co-author of 1636, The Cardinal Virtues. David Carrico is with us. He is the co-author of 1636, The Devil's Opera, and the sole author of 1635, Music and Murder. David is now reviving the Zhao Empire science fiction series with Eric with upcoming novel The Span of Empire out in the summer. Virginia DeMars is the co-author with Eric Flint of 1634 The Ram Rebellion and 1635 The Tangled Web, and she is the keeper of the famous 1632
0: grid. I'm not doing the grid anymore. Karen Offord, who also has a story in the collection, has taken over the grid
2: the big database of all this stuff. Robert Waters is the author of many science fiction short stories. And Walt Boyes and Joy Ward are uh, also the author of many science fiction short stories. And Walt and Joy are the editors of Ring of Fire Press. And Walt is the editor of the Grantville Gazette. Also here is Bjorn Hassler. All are all of these people are regular fixtures in the Grantville Gazette and elsewhere in the sixteen thirty two universe. Yeah, but, well, let me um, let me ask Walter about his uh, prison break. Um, you bring back some of the characters from Parcel of Rogues in in this story. Um, we meet the winning combo of Terry. Joe Tillman and Sherilyn Maddox. Um, bring us up to, tell us about these two again, if you will, Walter.
0: Well, they're, they're from 1636 of Cardinal Virtues.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. So, yeah. Yeah. Did I I use the wrong? Yep, all right. Cardinal Virtues, sorry.
0: Yeah, that's no problem. Perry, Perry Joe's my own, my own uh, uh, first, uh, I'm the first person to use Terry Joe. Sherilyn Maddox comes from the, uh, the Wrecking Crew, and I I pick her up right about the time Chuck drops her at the end of uh, it, apple Pig. It was, yeah. So, so Cheryl only left off the, when the when wrecking crew breaks up, and uh, I had great fun using these, these two ladies uh, because they have a history. Harry Joe is just the right age to have had Cheryl in that as a, her physical education teacher at Grand Hill High, and her memories of uh, um, Sherilyn, a very, very bad one. And now, of course, she's on the other side of the ring of fire, has served in the military, and now has a marketable still, a So she, she plays an important role in Cardinal Virtues as a Sherilyn. The um, story came about that I asked uh, Eric when we were going to do the next French book to find out what's happened to all the people that are involved at the end of the Cardinal Virtues. And he said, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe 2017. So I said, all right, <laughs> maybe I can write a piece and he said how about Ring of Fire 4 or I should do something for that so uh, I had this idea that they do this, this this tiny little cowboy operation to, uh, to break somebody out of prison and I just happened to have a prison that I used in the book
2: yes cool um, so there's a man in an iron mask in this story what what can you tell us about the historical foundations um, for the DeMoss tale and, and for your own here
0: well, there is, in fact, a story of a man in an iron mask, and it's pretty clear that it wasn't actually a, you know, a clone of the or, or a duplicate or twin twin brother of King Louis. Um, that's a later adaptation. Um, there was apparently a political prisoner of some sort who was masked some way and kept away. There's a whole body of story about it, and it's clear that Dumas made a whole bunch of stuff up. Um, I was... Talking to my my wife about the story, and I said one of, one of my favorite lines in it is, is when when Sherilyn comes across the the man in the iron mask, he's trapped at Neola, and he said, "Oh my," she says, "Oh my God, somebody's been reading Dumas, and fill him up." They come to try and rescue He says, "Don't worry, everybody reads Dumas. <laughs> you know, everybody in the 17th century reads Dumas, the because they're looking to see if they managed to make it into the three left of here. So just the idea that the Venom are in mass is, is somebody's read an Uptime book and said, "Oh, that's a good idea. Why don't we do that?" <laughs> um, I thought I thought it was highly amusing and uh, evidently Eric thought mm.
2: so the So, uh, what else can you tell us about this tangled political situation in France um, that uh, the the Uptimers have
0: complicated.
2: arrived to upset? Mm-hmm. This is your book was the Richelieu book, right? That's
0: Oh, right yeah this is the first time we've been back to France really since 1533, except peripherally uh, the problem with France is that there are there's a uh, uh, an, an installed king who hasn't got an heir and an active uh, younger brother who would make a great king if only he had been born a little earlier but the fact is that Louis and Gaston are two of fourteen children because there's all kinds of there's an enormous number of, of uh, bastards, an enormous number of uh, children, of mistresses, and uh, Henry, of course, had two wives. And the father had two wives. So the French political situation is immensely complex, and <laughs> Richelieu and Louis and uh, uh, have, have arranged this situation where been, there will now be an heir, and all they have to do is protect, protect the heir. But no sooner that, does that get underway, but then King Louis is assassinated by his older brother, who didn't intend to assassinate him at all. So there's all kinds of different people swirling around, and uh, it's unclear who uh, the real king is. Wanted to mention that um, Eric Eric mentions this whole business about how no child after 1632 will be exactly that child when the principal family in the series adopts Spinoza from the from the Jewish family. Um, the fact is that the way uh, the the number of ways in which the tiniest perturbation can change which sperm meets which ovum means that uh, that, that nobody's going to be the same unless you truly believe in um, uh, nurture over nature. Believe me, we use that stuff all the time, dude. <laughs> yeah, That lets us to get away with all kinds of stuff.
2: <laughs> well, I think we could probably say that Eric does not believe in the great man theory of history. <laughs>
0: no. But, but I mean, that's, that's, it allows us to do things like have people um, assume attributes that they might not otherwise assume at that time. Um, for I, example, I, in, Card- I, in Cardinal Virtues, I get to use Anne of Austria more as she was after her husband's death, just as, as she is with her husband's death, except she becomes a stronger character. But that character doesn't emerge until the 1640s, but I can bring her back and have her do that in 1636 because all the parameters have changed, the
2: the circumstances. So, uh, David Brand, can you repeat what you were saying to uh, David Carrico?
0: Oh, I was just saying, and it it does look like it is our fearless leader, Eric, after all. Um, Yeah. Who, uh, whose whose uh, influence on multiple worlds is such that we were getting staticky feedback. <laughs> <from them>. <laughs> That's <laughs> probably
1: the shard of
0: the Damn shards. <laughs> <laughs> Built with reality and portent. It was not. It was not information free. I was just saying to David C that um, his expertise in music might make him very interested in a completely different time travel. And so, get in touch with me, David. Yes, sir.
2: All right. Yeah, I would do that, David. <laughs> um,
0: Let me well, make a note of that.
2: Yeah, um, I I have been uh, really impressed with David's uh, with David's work. All right, so let's let's talk to Walt and Joy. Are you there, guys? Yeah, I'm here. Y'all deliver a, a very nice little character piece, um, and it, it's about um, being gay and dogs. <laughs> So um, uh, we have a gay character in Henry who's mourning the loss of his one time lover. Did you do some research about the situation for gay men in sixteen thirty four Germany or
0: um, um yes. yeah we did um oh, uh, i mean it not very hard to do that to be quite honest because um, if you just do a little research, you' find that out very quickly how dangerous it was for them and um how their lives were so circumscribed. Um, and that's really what propelled us into um, into making them uh, come out, basically, each other. At least, um, I mean, the the Italian character is he's not really out, but he's a little more out than Henry is. Um, but Henry was he's really he's really a beneficiary of the Ring of Fire. I mean, he would never have done this. Not
2: so this is uh, an example of, of a real cultural up um, uh, gain that, that was um, delivered by the, mm-hmm. the juxtaposition. There's also a lot of uh, about current medical knowledge and how it's rapidly changing, current as in 1634. Mm-hmm. What can you all tell us about that? Um, and changing
0: t- extremely critically because um, the um, the Grant Villers brought with them three hundred plus years of advances in medicine, pharmaceuticals, um, and treatment modalities, and um, the people that I mean, they can do things that that downtimers never believed. The story uh, um, in um. One of the one of the papacy novels I forget which one of uh, Sharon Nichols operating in a in a stomach everybody everybody knew in those days that if you if you had a wound in your stomach or your intestine you were dead uh, and that's not true or doesn't have to be true anymore um, I wanted to say I wanted to back up for a second and say something about gay men and women um the 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 higher class you were, the more likely that nothing would ever happen to you. Um one of the one of the Cardinals Barberini, uh, is pretty certainly a a gay man. Uh um there were rumors about Louis the Thirteenth. There were
3: more than rumors
0: I can uh, speak I can speak to that there's an awful lot of scholarship and and I think Eric Eric pushed me to try and make sure I read through it, suggesting that Louis the Thirteenth was at the very least bisexual that the mm-hmm. reason why he and he and Queen Anne never had a child was because he was repulsed by the idea of heterosexual relations. Um, I think there's there's evidence to suggest that a little later on than our time period, but um, I tried to, uh, re- reduce that to innuendo. I'm not sure whether he was gay or bisexual or not, but uh, but I kill him off pretty soon, so it's probably alright. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. Uh, no, Walt, Walt's very, very accurate. If, if, if you're gay and wealthy or gay in high, high social standing, you have a much better chance of being able to play in that, that world without getting caught and, I don't know, burned at the stake or or, or uh, repressed. But it also, uh, David Walter. Bren here, it also depends on on where you are in the course of a revolution if you're in oh. a, a city if you're in a city dominated by the, comi- the committees of, of correspondence mm-hmm. um there's, there's going you're 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 just going to have your own place at the table um screaming back and forth uh but but defending each other i have um a gay couple downstairs from my mystery guest um mm-hmm. it, but that's but that's in grantsbury so oh, in Grantville, you know, I would expect that it would be a haven where where people would be of this coloration, rainbow coloration, be flocking from all directions. Or a big city. The bigger the city, the more likely you can hide in the crowd. Right. In Paris, with everyone here. Sure. Well, I mean that absolutely that hasn't changed. I mean that's that's still the same. Um, you know, where do you find the largest gay communities? They're in a large city. Um, I'm originally from Memphis, and any, any gays who wanted to live a sane life from Arkansas or Mississippi or Kentucky or Tennessee all ended up in Memphis. They didn't go to New Orleans, they went to Memphis. Why? Because Memphis was bigger, they could get lost in it, they wouldn't be, um, caught, so to speak. And that's exactly what we see with Henry. Um, he wants to learn how to, He's already decided he's going to change his life. He's decided that he's going to take death head-on. Um, and this is, this is just a side benefit for him of going to a large city um, that is somewhat forward-thinking. I mean, but also, the reason, part of the reason why we went with the gay couple is because Walt and I do get out to a number of cons, and we ask people <coughs> what they want to see in um, in the 1632 universe and we give a number of answers but one of the big answers we've gotten over the last couple of years is we've got a lot of lgbt readers and they really want to see themselves in the universe and that's part of what we're doing with this
2: mm-hmm. well it's a wonderful uh sort of character uh, vignette piece and it also has dogs um were there different uh attitudes to, i know tom Kidd did some a lot of research on what on on dogs and he was doing uh one of his covers um what were what were attitudes towards pets like back back in the day
0: once again it's a it's a um societal it's where are you in the culture if you are um if you are barely making it by, if you are barely making your daily bread, a dog is just another thing there. But then, if you're wealthy, of course, you can have a lot of dogs. I mean, look at like the uh, the King Charles cats that came out of uh, out of royalty. Um, interesting thing though is is that dogs go with humans everywhere. They have always gone since humans went into the cities. They started taking dogs with them, and so there are going to be dogs in Grantville and Magdeburg
2: and um, some of the other cities, as well as the farm dogs. So, um, well, let's uh, let's turn to Virginia. I think that, that uh, she's the only one we haven't heard from yet. Um, and the redheaded league. <laughs> I just uh, one of the things I really loved about the story was that you have a couple of characters um, who are looking up their own history. Um, and ha- and trying to find if they're mentioned anywhere in those damn textbooks, um, we have this happening a good deal with with the more upper class or well known characters in in the universe, right?
0: Hmm. Certainly would. Really though, to put uh, this particular story in perspective, the origin of this whole of stories I've been doing goes back to about 2002 when many of the fans were all gung-ho about ing- having the French and the Germans refight World War One on the Rhine and Eric said Lotharingia shall rise again. He wanted to develop a series of buffer states between France and Germany USA so that they couldn't do it. Without a lot of political complications at any rate. So I have been looking at Burgundy and Alsace and Lorraine areas in there. Then the other one was that for uh, the Bavarian crisis, I produced Maria Anna, who was, in fact, a very staid and devout young woman. And Eric said, we don't want to do that again. Can you find a heroine from the time who wasn't that kind of girl? And I came up with Marguerite de Rohan, who most certainly was not not only was she ten years younger when she first shows up in this story, but out of a totally different uh, cultural milieu.
2: Yeah, she's a firecracker. Um, uh, why does she need to why does she need a husband?
0: She needs a husband because of the sales law. Basically, she she could inherit Rohan's estate, uh, but she cannot be a political force. That is, she can't uh, appear in the estate uh, at court. She would be a social ornament rather than being able to sit. So she she needs a husband who will function for her. As a talking head, if you want to put it that way. And from her father's point of view, he is, by golly, going to be Protestant. of
2: well, She's Huguenot, right? Is that what?
0: Huguenot, yes. Uh, Calvinist. French, ah. French Calvinist.
2: And the redheads of the title, who are they?
0: They are legitimate historical redheads. Uh, they are Henri de Rivigny, who was a client of the Rohan family and in the real world devoted most of his life to fighting a rearguard action against Louis XIV until he finally lost with the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685 and went into exile in England. Uh, the other one is uh, August von Bismarck, and people are going to have to know a little about the family to get the joke, because at one point he says, and this famous guy must have been one of my descendants of one of my brothers or cousins. They must have held on to Schoenbrunn because he came from there. This was the direct lineal ancestor uh, of Otto von Bismarck. Uh, in the real world, in the 1640s, he went back to Brandenburg, and the settled in and reconstituted the family estates. But there is absolutely nothing about it in the resources that Grantville has. And this is one thing that I do like to emphasize, which is that Grantville's library has a lot, but it's not going to have the answer to everybody's question.
2: Yeah, they didn't come back with the Library of Congress. They have basically a small-town library, right?
0: Yes. Yeah, besides, they have a small-town high, high school library. Uh, they have the public library. They have books. But they it's not an immense... It's an immense library by the standards of the 17th century, but it certainly doesn't have all the data by any means. This is David Brennan, but I just wanted to comment amid your brilliant um, de- depiction here that, that um, of the year 2000, um, there weren't all these little pocket storages of the entire Wikipedia. I mm-hmm. have
2: one. Okay. The book ends with this big new novella, uh, Scarface, which I thought was really great. Um, um, and we bring back the beloved character for further development. And um, and you introduce the very resilient Eva von Anhalt Dessau. Is Chuck still there? Is. Can you tell us a little bit about Lefferts, um, give us some background?
1: Well, I'm, I come into the story late since obviously he doesn't start out in pebble Stakes, but that's where I, I certainly picked him up. Um, Lefferts is a is a kind of interesting fellow who was um, a bit of a sports hero, sort of, uh, um, you know, the the one most likely to fill in the blank, I think, when he graduated from high school. Um and uh one of the things that that Eric brought forth in him that he is one of those individuals who um probably would never he's one of those people for whom probably the the trip through the ring of fire um took a person that would possibly have bounced from job to job and not necessarily found a niche to becoming um if you will a sort of white right man at the right time sort of circumstance where his his various um both the things he was interested in and his natural aptitudes combined to make him, according to Eric, um, one of, you know, a a, a leader uh, for what Eric considers to be the premier sort of um, commando um outfit in that period of time. Now I should say that that Eric when Eric and I actually had to sort of sort this out in the process of papal stakes. I think of commando more in the sense of what comes up out of the, the, you know, the original word was war and turns into sort of special operations in the sense of, um, SAS or Green Beret or things like that. Eric was thinking about it, I think, more predominantly in the sense of, uh, political operatives such as the commando groups, as they called themselves, um, that were, if you will, the elite of the partisans in the Balkans and places like that. So that it, it's kind of important to understand that when we talk about Harry as quote, "a commando," certainly prior to the middle of papal stakes, um, that doesn't necessarily mean the same, exactly the same sort of um, close cleaving to a certain kind of of, uh, of discipline um, and and what I would say predictable routine uh, of military science. In some ways, that's more um what Thomas North is doing um in the in the case of the uh, the Hibernian Rifles which are really not commandos but are more what would be considered an elite formation such as Merrill's marauders or something like that if you were going to pull from history so Harry Roberts has all these qualities that make him a great swing character in that sort of role he's very good with languages um he has natural uh physical abilities he was an athlete in in his high school years so that's what we see. But in the one thing that happens in in Papal Stakes, and I think changes him as probably to being interested in Eva in Scarface, is that in Papal Stakes um, he sort of meets his match, at least in Rome, mm-hmm. and uh, he is he is he deems himself fully responsible. That's that's a, probably a, an, an excessive. Um, there's these, I, I would say, well, I don't want to diminish the tragedy of it. He's having a little bit of a pity party there. Um, but he does that by, by saying, I'm responsible for all of that. And that changes him. Um, he learns to be more of a team player. He learns to be, he learns to, um, I think you could say the first blush of youth is gone. And now he's more seasoned. And I think that change is part of what's going on with the, that, that arc of change is being carried through. To what we see of him uh on in many different perspectives than Ava in the in the relationship with Ava and Scarfie.
2: it's a it's a great um it's a great closing novella um have we uh have we lost eric permanently are you there um well let me just close it out then by asking uh a general question why do you guys do it why, why write in eric's universe what's the allure um i guess it's different for everyone but
0: um part of it's eric mhm- we all like
2: to work with Eric. Yeah, he
0: asked me to. <laughs> that
2: there you guys. That's a good answer. What but why um I mean, you know, there's a lot of universes of, of you know, there's some fan fiction, but um it's it's just not this seems like a particularly tight knit and uh and resonant group. Um what is it that, that keeps you guys um so
0: I like it because I love history. That's that's one of the things that I like the twist of history. I've always enjoyed alternate history. So when Chuck invited me to actually give it a shot, I said why not? And uh, since then it's been just terrific. I mean that's what keeps me. I mean it it it's the it's the lure of the the, the history that's there, and then uh, my freedom to twist it, um, to to make it in in my mind far more exciting than what's really there. So another thing that's that, that's of interest is that. We get to see who it is that fits the the, the downtime, and who it is who simply remains estranged from it. Um, that's a theme that I find very interesting. Is somebody like Harry Lefkert who can adapt to being in the 17th century, and he just kind of fits into it and gets to be a, a person he never would have been uptime. Whereas some people can never get used to the Ring of Fire, can never get used to being in the 17th century, and they never adapt. Well, that, that's one of the things that I kind of like to explore too, and I've done that in some of my stories. the The notion that you know, uh, people that have, are are used to modern age are thrust back in the time, and they just can't adjust. Mm. You know, it's just something that they just can't get their heads around. And, and, I, and I find right. that to be a, a very compelling uh, situation to yeah. write about. In, in Cardinal Virtues, uh, Terry Jo is adapts to the seventeenth century. She becomes a, a an uptimer or in downtime, whereas her father really cannot cannot accustom himself to it. And I think Robert, I believe you used you used her father in a story. I I got to use Terry Joe for the first time, but I believe Rivers of His Memory is where we get where we get Terry yes. Joe's dad for the first time. Yeah, he he he's in River of His Memory. He's uh, friends with. Um uh, one of the main characters in there the one that's uh, suffering from alzheimer's and uh, you're right he he just he's, he's a little bit of a fish out of you know uh, duck out of water fish out of water he d- he doesn't um he doesn't really read he's a vietnam vet and you know it's just it's difficult for him he manages but you know it's difficult Well, by the time we meet Carrie Joe, he's lost not only his his um sister-in-law but he's lost his wife right and and you know he sort of blames the Ring of Fire, but the fact is, Terry Joe observes that that it isn't it isn't Ring of Fire that killed these the, two women. To, to it's hunting disease, and they were holding on when they were uptime. and they, they simply couldn't hold on any longer once they were downtime. But but he he simply culturally can't assimilate to the to the downtime. It's it, it, it's not his time, and as the time goes on, only the people who can adapt to the seventeenth century become part of or the others simply will never do that, and, and I think that's an interesting sort of tragic aspect of the, of the, of the milieu that, that's worth exploring. That's so I want
1: to, to pull out a, a um, in, in answer to why Eric. Um, I know, for instance, <laughs> that Walter and uh, and Robert have written and work in gaming companies. A whole bunch of us have worked in all sorts of Collaborative enterprises, and enough for me, at least in my own experience, to be able to say, I can't think of a person I'd rather work with than Eric. Oh um, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that doesn't yeah, yeah. that that doesn't mean that that we haven't had disagreements on occasion, but <laughs> he is a he he really listens. Um, he he approaches every writing relationship, from what I can tell, very very much on an individual basis. For instance, with mm-hmm. Eric. Eric basically, I, you know, Eric says, show me an outline, I show him an outline, he says, go to. I show him something at the midpoint, and he'll have something to say about that, and then I'll show him the end, And, and but then there are other folks that he's writing almost in an iterative process going back and forth all the time. And then you consider the fact that this is a person who, you know, basically threw his, his universe and his arms open to writers who, you know, this is a very hard field to get a start in. He basically said, You you want to play in the sandbox? Come on over to my house and play in the sandbox. I mean there's an incredible generosity of spirit there that shows up in in pretty much mm-hmm. every aspect of working with him that because, you know, now I'm now I'm probably you know, people are probably gonna write on Facebook, Hey Chuck, you know, you need to wipe that brown stuff off your nose. But that's really <laughs> not why I'm saying this. I'm yeah, saying because it is really the case and my guess is you could ask you could approach me where there are no microphones and uh, and I will say the same thing, and I would dare say that everybody on this phone call probably
0: would yep. say very much mm-hmm. the same thing. Yep, Agreed. Yep. But he well, makes it work really hard. That's... Eric does look for people who are willing to work in a collaborative environment. I know that for me, he was interested that I had done collaborative technical reports for years and years in the mm-hmm. federal government. They weren't fiction, but I had to adapt what I was writing to what the other real uh,
2: representatives for writing Virginia, you said they were for the federal government and they were fiction <laughs> <laughs> that's just wait that was a that was a soft <laughs> uh, so the um it, history it, i everybody that i've uh I've ever talked to about Eric has said basically what Chuck just said um so maybe him signing off gave us a chance to do a little Eric love fest that's oh
0: yeah uh, the, this is David Carrico. Let me throw a couple of words in here. Uh first of all, Eric pays it forward better than anybody I know. Yeah. Uh uh, you know, every advance in my professional career, Eric has evolved in. Every step upward in my professional career, Eric has been a factor. Uh he pays, you know, and it's it's all he just does it. He's not looking for paybacks. He's not looking for pats on the back. He just does it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's who Eric is. And that is, like everybody else said, that is part of why we do this, is because Eric makes it so enjoyable. I think I'm the only person in the call that has worked with Eric in two of his uh, story universes because uh, I got the work, I got the privilege. Of uh, completing the first draft of Span of Empire, different, slightly different experience because he maintains much tighter creative control over the Zhao Empire universe than he does over over uh, 1632. But it was the same Eric. It was the same encouragement. It was the you know here's the you know take your best shot and let me see what you can do and that encouragement and that that generosity, because he didn't have to give me that second opportunity in the Jowl Empire universe. He was under no obligation to give me that opportunity, but the fact that he did is just a marker of the kind of guy Eric is.
2: Well, that seems like a great place to leave it. Um...
0: You really want to understand where Eric's coming from. Um, My main gig is an interview uh column with Galaxy's Edge Magazine, and I interviewed him last year. And he really opened up about why he does what he does, why he collaborates, and where he's coming from. And I won't try to tell you all the stories right now because we don't have time, but if you really want to know who Eric is, I would say check out that interview.
2: Yeah. And uh, there, we've had him on the podcast many times. He is—he's—I he, basically did a the long Eric history session with him in in one of those. And so there's a lot of stuff out there about his uh, his amazing past as a union organizer as well. The book is short story collection Ring of Fire Four, edited by Eric Flint, with stories by many authors, including David Brin, Charles E. Gannon, Walter H. Hunt, David Carrico, Walt Boys and Joy Ward, and Bjorn Hassler, Robert Waters, Virginia DeMars, and I guess that's everyone, isn't it?
0: Everyone who so, was here.
2: So uh, Ring of Fire 4 is now available at booksellers everywhere, Ring of Fire authors. Thank you all very much for being with us and, uh, and discussing and talking about your wonderful story.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. you Thanks Take very you. much. Take care, Tony. Thanks.
2: That was part two of a two-part roundtable discussion on Ring of Fire short story anthology, Ring of Fire 4. Part one of the roundtable was part of last week's podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than a 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under
3: a graveyard sky. I can't believe we're trying to unwrap from a cruise liner, Gardner said. Unrep, or underway replenishment, was a tricky business in the best of times and circumstances. The basic idea was to create sort of zip lines between two ships and slide stuff back and forth. Simple on land. Two rocky points tended to stay reasonably the same distance apart, down to the subatomic level. Ships, however, did not. So what usually happened was that your package, be it ammunition or food or toilet paper or, God help them, people, tended, if the ships closed, to go into the drink, or if they separated, be flung upwards at a high rate of speed. In extreme circumstances... The package could fail to choose between being crushed as the two close-following ships collided or being flung upwards, the rope part, and go flying into the far distance. One unfortunate and extremely disliked lieutenant commander in the Navy in the 1960s had all four happen on a single attempt at moving between a destroyer and a carrier. The lieutenant commander was first dunked, then popped back out rapidly enough to thoroughly dry the ropes as they hyperextended. This, of course, had the effect of bouncing him up and down like a tightened rubber band. He was then dunked again, re-popped, at which point the carry line parted, throwing the unfortunate officer upwards in a ballistic arc. The lieutenant at the con of the destroyer panicked, ordered a radical course correction to starboard towards the carrier, just as the officer landed in the water between the two vessels, which promptly collided. The lieutenant commander was assumed to have been crushed, as his body was never found. The irony that the lieutenant commander, the carrier vessel battle group's inspector general, had just written a scathing report on the con training of the officers of the destroyer was not lost on the incident report board. Thereafter, the Navy went to all hello, or boat transfers, for personnel at sea. You know we just hit the 400, mark, Steve said, keying the double doors. 400 days, Fontana asked, popping the hatch with the halligan and moving back. 400 people, Steve said. 400 known survivors of humanity, plus the hull and CDC and whoever they're in contact with. Holy crap, Faith said softly. I know it's not a lot, Steve said, shining his tack light around the cavernous room. A zombie in the distance growled, then howled. It couldn't even be seen, but it alerted others who stumbled to their feet and headed to the lights. But we're getting there, back to defense positions. Not that, Faith said, taking up her position behind a counter. That room, what was it? Casino, I think, Fontana said. He began slow-aimed fire at the blinded zombies stumbling through the door. He already had four magazines laid out on the counter. It's huge, Faith said sticking a finger in her ear to cut down on the cracks from the AK. Should have seen the ones in Vegas, Fontana said. Maybe someday, Faith said, when I'm like 90. Zombie clearance Vegas. Resident Evil, the cruise ship. You can see the game, right? Hooch said. I'll think we're playing it, Steve pointed out. How come when I'm shooting my ears don't ring? Faith asked. Tagging a zombie in the chest as it tried to figure out how to get around a roulette table with a surefire in its eyes. The beauty of this ride ahead, tap, tap. The zombies were having trouble with the complex layout of the casinos. Casinos were designed to get people to change directions so they'd go, ooh, I bet I can win that game. The zombies could see the lights, they just couldn't figure out how to get to them. Then, all of a sudden, they would. For that matter, it wasn't always clear to the clearers where the open areas or the zombies were. Clearing them out was a painstaking process of zombies howling and thrashing in the darkness. When they could, they took the zombies at range. Faith had had to break out the kukri, twice. Oral damping, Fontana said. Checking right, she said, shining the light around the other side of the roulette table. For some reason, the chewed up people just weren't horrible anymore. She could even slide her eyes right over the kids. There's an answer? I was sort of asking one of those rectangular questions. Rhetorical, Fontana said, chuckling. Clear left, clear-ish. I think we're gonna have to sweep and resweep. Works for me, Faith said. Hang on, stumbler coming around my side. She took the shot. She'd stopped double-tapping to conserve ammunition, but the forty five round was usually good enough with one shot. It didn't kill the zombies immediately, but they bled out pretty quickly. Reloading. Hang on, duh, she said over the radio. Go. I'm running out of forty five mags. I've got ammo, but I don't exactly want to re-ammo in here. I've got mags, Fontana said. Like I'm gonna use a colt if I don't gotta, Faith said. I could also use a break. Roger, pull back to the entrance. This does get the adrenal gland, don't it? Fontana said, firing twice in rapid succession. They just seemed to come out of nowhere. They'd learned when they cleared the theater to shut the door behind them. It meant they didn't have a way out. It also meant they didn't have leakers that suddenly appeared when they thought they were at a secure point. And I think if we're going to keep clearing this thing, We might as well all go to carbines, Faith said, starting. She fired two rounds into a body on the floor. It moved. I swear it did. How long can I stand under here? Faith shouted as the water from the fire hose poured over her. As long as you want. The guy manning the system wasn't Coast Guard. She didn't even recognize him. It recycles. Cool, Faith muttered giving him a thumbs up. She was just gonna stand there for a while then. Be careful not to fire in the direction of the other team, Fontana said nervously, and watch the bouncers. No worries, Faith said, hefting the AK variant. The Arsenal SLR 107 would only have been vaguely recognizable to Mikhail Kalashnikov. It had an improved safety, AR buttstock, Rail with lights and Trigicon TA-11F. But the guts were still the reliable system Kalashnikov had stolen from various World War II assault rifles, then refined. I have fired this thing before. A zombie charged out of the shadows to her right, and she turned and double-tapped it in the chest. The rounds continued through the body and bounced off a bar on the other side and pinged off into the darkness. Oops, she said as the infected collapsed on the floor. You hit? Fontana asked. No, you? I'm good. I hate full metal jacket. Okay, 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 Faith said. I just, seriously? An indoor pool? Seriously. The cavernous room was marked spa. Faith had always wanted to go to a spa. She'd sort of envisioned small rooms with hot tubs and massage tables or something. She'd always wondered what a walnut scrub was. There were hot tubs, scattered around in various styles. There were Roman baths, Japanese baths, stone flagging, and walls. The ceiling, far, far overhead, was a massive skylight that gave them an unfortunately clear view of the interior. Zombies would eat each other for food. All they really needed to survive was something resembling water and the spa had had lots of water. So there were lots of zombies. And although they'd been awakened by Steve's whistle, it had echoed in the cavernous interior, and they weren't sure where to go. The room was lit well enough, the team had turned off their tack lights. Not to mention, there were pools of water all over the place. So even the zombies that noticed them were having a hard time getting to them. Except for the close ones. I'm really glad we went to Rifles, Faith said, targeting one of the nearer zombies. It was having to go around a counter to get to them, and she got it with a deflection headshot on the run, and it dropped out of sight. Nice, Fontana said, taking two more down. Is it just me, or was that exactly like shooting a duck in an arcade? Faith said. She fired at another one, but missed. We gonna move forward? Yes, Steve said, firing. But one team. Head for that high ground over there. The high ground was what had probably been an indoor waterfall. Hug the wall, Steve said. Take them down as they come to us. Don't engage over 25 meters unless I say so. What's the fun of that? Faith asked. I'd like as many rants to go into zombies as possible, Steve said. Don't shoot till you see the reds of their eyes, Fontana said. Gotcha. The one problem with the high ground was that once they'd gotten up there, all the zombies could see them and closed in, and they couldn't exactly retreat. This is getting sort of hot, Fontana said, doing a fast reload. He had to pat for magazines until he found one. Hot, yeah, Faith said, firing steadily at the mass of infecteds clawing their way up the former waterfall. But it's not in the dunny yet. Dunny? Hooch asked. Aussie for latrine, Steve said. What is, in your opinion, in the dunny, Fontana said. Because I could sure use some time to reload mags. Being in the dunny isn't no time to reload magazines, Faith said, reloading. Being in the dunny is all your knives are stuck in bodies, you're tripping over your mags and brass, and your Halligan tool is bent. I can't wait for you to get legal so I can propose. We in the dunny yet? Fontana asked, as he stuck the pry base of his Halligan into a zombie's eye. Nope, Faith said, pounding one on the head with her AK. I haven't had to shoot one off me yet, and I've yet to pull a knife. Dunny yet? Hooch yelled, sticking his bowie knife into a zombie's stomach and ripping up. Halligan tool bent? Faith asked, firing into a zombie's head. Another one grabbed her legs and her feet slipped out from under her. The zombie dragged her down the rocks of the waterfall as she kicked at it. Others piled on, trying to bite through her armor. Shit, 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 Fontana said. Okay, she yelled. Now we're getting there. We're gonna have to melee down to her, Steve said, smashing his halogen into a zombie's head. We're barely holding here, Fontana said. When we've winnowed them down. Nice thing about being in a scrum, Faith said, as Fontana dragged her out from under the bodies. Steve was doing the same thing for Hooch. You don't have to worry which direction you're aiming, and there's no real way to miss. That was in the dunny. She looked around, sitting up, her legs still covered by zombie bodies. Hey, look, the waterfall is working again. Sort of.
2: That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jedkowitz. And a massive sculpture of the great beetle sky god constructed of concretized rubber tree foliage regurgitated by an army of leafcutter ants in their rainforest colony inside an abandoned Mayan spacecraft Plus, our thanks and praise and excitement all rolled into a round of applause to Eric Flint, David Bren, Charles E. Gannon, David Carrico, Walter H. Hunt, Robert Waters, Walt Boys, Joy Ward, Virginia DeMars, and Bjorn Hassler, all authors of stories in the Ring of Fire for Alternate History Anthology. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.